Good morning. It's really good to be here with you. I, like Pastor Terry said, I've, I've been here for some women's events and um, I see familiar faces. I've met a few of you before. So it's wonderful to be back. And for those of you I'm just meeting for the first time, um, it's just great to be with you this morning. Like Pastor Terry said, I'm um, a wife and a mom. Uh, my husband would be here with me this morning, except that he uh, actually works at our church. And so, you know, Sunday is a work day. Um, so he's working with the kids and families over at our church. I have two boys, Keelan and Phoenix. They're eight and four years old. And hopefully right now they are enjoying kids' church over there. Um, but yeah, I, um, I founded a ministry called Because Justice Matters about 10 years ago, and um, I just want to take a moment right now and just kind of share about an upcoming event that we have going on. Some of you I know are familiar with Because Justice Matters. You've volunteered with us. You've been to some of our events in the past. We have an event coming up on September 21st. It's called Legacy, and we are going to be celebrating the last decade. It's our 10-year anniversary gala celebrating what God has been doing, the legacy that we've been building. We're all building a legacy, right? And so that's what we're going to be looking back at. We want to invite you to come. We have some flyers around here um, in the bistro table area. You can also go to the website because justice matters forward slash legacy, legacy and find out more. We want to invite you to come. I would love you to come, bring your women's group, bring your men's group, bring your mom's group, bring your colleagues, bring anyone, and just come. Because more than this being a fundraiser, we have a sense that what God is going to do on this night is to reignite hope in us for San Francisco. It's just embolden our faith. Because what we're going to look at is like, look what God has done. And then we're going to be talking about the future and what he's going to be doing. And I believe that he wants to stir in all of us this hope and this faith for our city, for the Bay Area, what he's doing. So if that's the kind of night that you'd like to be part of, come out and join us. It's going to be a really fun evening. Um, I'd, I'd love to see you there. So I am jumping in uh, this morning with your sermon series, and it's called Where Faith Gets Moving. And when Pastor Terry gave me this, this, uh, this theme that you've all been in this summer, I was super excited. Partly because I love to teach on faith. It's one of the primary things that I love to teach on. But also because the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a passage that God has had me in personally for the last few months. It's something he's kind of been working into me. So what you're getting this morning is kind of a download of what God has been doing in me. Now we're going to read a chunk of scripture in just a moment. And I want you to hang with me. I know it's a little bit long. And that's the nature of the Old Testament, right? If you want to get a story, you kind of have to read through all the details of it. So we're going to read a chunk of scripture. What you have on your notes are just kind of some key highlighted areas that I'm going to point back to throughout the sermon. So feel free to follow along on the screens or on your Bible or on your phones or wherever you have um, your Bible. And also note that on, your, on your, your notes there, I'm going to kind of refer back to that. So we're going to be reading from Numbers 13. And we're going to be starting at verse 17. Numbers 13, verse 17. It says, When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they war unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Sin as far as Rehob, 
toward Lebo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkel, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites and Amorites live in the hill country and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said the land we explore devours those living in it. All the people we saw there of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes and we looked the same to them. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you're the same God in our lives this morning as the God in this passage that gave the promise to your people to go into Canaan to take the promised land. I thank you, God, that you're faithful. I thank you, God, that you're always moving us forward. And I pray, Lord, this morning, if there's any obstacles, any resistance, any hindrance that would get in the way of us moving forward into the promise in our life, would you move it aside and would you silence it in Jesus' name? And I pray, Holy Spirit, this morning that you have the freedom to work in our hearts to make us a people of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So to understand where we're picking up this story today, we've kind of jumped into a middle. It's like opening a book and just jumping right in. We're like, what's going on? Who are these people? What is this promised land that they're heading into? Why are they sending spies out? So to understand what we're reading today, we need to jump back a few hundred years. Now, I know that Pastor Terry, a few weeks ago, started this series by talking about the life of Abraham. And that's really where this starts for the people of Israel. God encounters this man called Abraham. And he begins to build this relationship with Abraham. And he says, hey, Abraham, I want you to pick up and I want you to move to a new place. I want you to be in relationship with me. I want you to trust me. And if you do that, then I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to tie myself to you and say, I'm going to be your God and you and all your descendants will be my people. I just want you to believe me. So God makes this covenant and he says, I'm tying myself to you. I'm covenanting. I'm promising you that if you follow me, if you trust me, then I'm going to make you into this great nation, all your descendants, and I'm going to take you into this place called Canaan, the place that we often refer to as the promised land. And there, I will be a God, you will be my people. And it will be a place of prosperity, place of abundance. You see, the important thing about this connection between God and Moses is that God is faithful. 
It's his promise. He sustains it. He remains faithful and committed to Abraham and all his descendants over the hundreds of years between that moment and this story. We go through Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. We move through all those generations and God continues to show up and be faithful even when they are not faithful to him. Even when they wander off and do all kinds of crazy things, God remains faithful and consistent and his promise is good. And if you remember from the Old Testament, the life of Joseph, during that time, God brings Israel into Egypt to save them from famine. Again, showing up is faithfulness to them. But then a new Pharaoh comes to Egypt, right? A new Pharaoh shows up, he's not happy with the Israelites, and he enslaves them for 400 years. The descendants of Abraham, the people of promise, end up enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And then if God, of course, faithful as always, shows up through the life of Moses, says, hey, I want you to go in there and rescue the people. Moses goes in, there's that whole story in the book of Exodus, where the people of God come out of Egypt, they're faced with the Red Sea, God parts it, brings them over, and they're heading towards the promised land. So there's a history here of hundreds of years with God. And you can read it through the books of Genesis and Exodus, and now in the book of Numbers, this morning, God has been consistently faithful on behalf of his people. So where we're picking up today, it's kind of the pinnacle and the climax of this story. We have to remember that this promise, they've been holding on to it for hundreds of years. There's been struggle, there's been slavery, there's been pain, and there's been this hope that one day God would bring them into this place. God would bring them into this promised land, this land known as Canaan. Now we hear these words, we read a lot of of words in that scripture. They're like, what are all these places? Well, just to put it in context, Canaan today, modern day Israel, modern day Jordan. This is a real place. This is a real land. This is not a fantasy. This is not made up. God is taking them to a new place where he wants them to prosper, where he wants them to be in relationship with him. So we find ourselves at the climax of this story. And the land is unknown, though God has promised it. They don't know what to expect. So Moses sends out spies, sends out 12 spies. And he says to them, I want you to go and explore the land. Tell us what it's like. Give us a little bit of information. Tell us about the soil. Tell us about the trees. Tell us about the people. Go check it out and then come and report back. And that's where we pick up the story today. The spies come back, and 10 out of 12 of them have the same story, and then two out of the 12 have a different story. Verses 27 and 28 says, They went into the land, we went into the land in which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. And we even saw descendants of Anak there. So this is the report of the 10 spies. They're coming back and they're saying, here's the abundance. I mean, they're literally carrying the grapes on a pole between two people. They've got all this provision, all this abundance. They've come back to say, the land is indeed fruitful. It's good, but it's inaccessible to us. There's so many powerful people. There's so many fortified cities. Yes, there are good things there, but we can't access that. We can't grab a hold of it. We can't go up and take the land. You see, it's possible to taste and touch the promise of God and still turn around and go the other way. It's possible to creep into the edge of your promise 
for your life, for your family, for your community. It's possible to experience it and then turn around and go the other way. How is that possible? In the face of all of God's goodness, <coughs> excuse me, all of God's abundance for Israel to taste it, to carry it back and to still say, but no, we can't have this. You see, the 10 spies had their attention elsewhere, not on the promise of God, not on the grapes and the abundance and everything that was possible. They had their attention on other things, powerful people, large and fortified cities, and the descendants of Anak. You see, they begin to paint a picture for Israel of the land that's ahead of them that is filled with fear and intimidation. The cities are huge. The people are huge. There are giants there. Yes, it's fruitful, but it's unattainable for us. Have you ever felt like God's promise for your life is good, but not accessible, not attainable? That's exactly this place that Israel find themselves at. Yes, we can see the grapes and we can see the goodness, but I don't think we can get there. I don't think we can reach it. The obstacles are so big, so impenetrable, so reinforced, we can't access it. And who are these descendants of Anak? What is that even talking about? Well, this is a re reference to kind of giant-sized warlike people. Re their reputation would have preceded them. When they spoke these words, Israel would have felt incredibly intimidated and terrified. These were a people that would stand in the way of God's promise. The mention of their name would have evoked so much terror in their hearts. And you see, the spies don't stop there. The storytelling continues. In verse 32, after they've mentioned the powerful people and the giants and the fortified cities, they go on to say, the land we explored devours those living in it. The land that we explored is going to eat us up. It's going to devour us. Now, this is an interesting play on words here. Because let's take a moment to consider what is this land supposed to be? What had God promised? Well, in Exodus 3, God is talking to Moses on a mountain. And this is the first mention of milk and honey. You guys are probably familiar with that term. It's often thrown around a lot when we talk about the promised land. God shows up and says to Moses that he's going to rescue them from the Egyptians and bring them into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the first reference to it in the Old Testament. This land that I'm going to take you into is going to be good. It's going to flourish. It's going to thrive. And not only that, but it's going to sustain you. It's going to enrich your lives. It's going to feed your families. It's going to be provision. It's going to be supply. The future I have for you is a good future. I have plans to prosper you. This is the promise of God to the Israel. This is a life-giving promise. So now here we are with the spies knowing God's word that this was the promise that the land would feed you and sustain you and enrich you and be good for you, now that gets twisted. And now that's turned upside down, no longer is it a land that will sustain you and give you life, but it will be a land that will take your life. It will devour you. It will destroy you. God's words here are being twisted and manipulated. It almost sounds familiar to Genesis 3 when the serpent says, did God really say? Did God really say that? Are you sure? See, the enemy has been reinterpreting God's words since the beginning. He'll take God's promise, he'll take God's words and twist it 
Are you sure God said he was going to show up for your marriage? Are you sure God said that was the promise for your family, for your finances? Are you sure God said he promised to never leave you or forget about you? doesn't look like that. Actually, it looks like things are going towards disaster. Actually, it looks like things are going towards ruin. You see, the enemy will take God's word, reinterpret it, sprinkle it with threats and intimidation and fear and throw it back into our face. You think God's going to provide for your debt or your financial needs or your housing situation? God doesn't care about that. You've got to pull yourself up and do it yourself. You think God's going to save your kids? You're still holding on to those promises from when they were children. That's cute. But God doesn't care about that. God can't save them. You see, this is how, God, how the enemy takes the promise of God in our life. And he begins to turn it and twist it and manipulate it. He's a thief and a liar. The enemy will mock every promise of God over your life. He has no interest in supporting God's word or God's work. He will manipulate it and he will lie to us and he will steal from us. You see, the enemy isn't just satisfied to bring fear into our life, to make us feel like the obstacles and the giants and the cities are, are so big and so terrifying. He's not satisfied with that. You see, there's a strategy to how he works in our life and we can see it in the scripture this morning. In verse 33, it's also on your notes, says we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. The spy said we, we felt like grasshoppers Grasshoppers, tiny little insects, insignificant, small, powerless, just crunch them beneath the bottom of your feet. We felt so small and powerless. Why is it that Israel resonated with this image so much? Why is it that they, they, they felt inclined to believe that that was true? You see, sometimes when we, we talk about Israel, we think that it's this great, powerful nation. But you see, we're not there yet. We're not into kings. We're not into the life of David and all the armies and the fighting and the powerful conquering things. We're talking about a group of people that were just saved out of Egypt by God alone, not by their own effort, not by their own strength, that have been enslaved for 400 years. That means that generation after generation was born into slavery. They were born into a mindset that said, you're small, you're insignificant, you have no value, you have no power, you have no voice. And so generation after generation, family member after family member was born into a way of thinking that they felt small and insignificant. So when the spies come along and say, we felt like grasshoppers, everybody probably went, yeah, we feel like grasshoppers. We feel small. That resonates. That feels like a true story in our lives. And you see, sometimes when the enemy comes with insecurity, it feels so true, doesn't it? It feels like, yes, we can resonate with this. Yes, this feels like my story. You see, because if the enemy can't terrify you with what's out there, he'll paralyze you with what's not in here. If you can't make this seem so impenetrable and large and terrifying, he'll come at you and make what you have seem so lacking and seem so small. He'll convince you that you're underqualified or inexperienced, not far enough along in your Christian faith to try that kind of, that kind of big faith prayer, like not far enough along. Not handsome enough, not pretty enough, don't make enough money, not smart enough for a meaningful, lasting relationship. He'll make you feel like something is always lacking, always missing. He'll turn your eyes to the attention of those around you 
So you can just compare yourself and feel like, wow, they're so accomplished. They're so able. They're better at that. They're more gifted at that. I'm just me. I don't have anything to offer. And you see, this is kind of like the enemy's strategy is like a one-two punch. Comes in with the fear, like we're in this boxing ring. Comes in, and he'll just pound us with the fear. He'll just pound us and tell us everything's so terrifying and big, and you can't do it. It's always the language of defeat with the enemy. But just when you think you can get your hands on the ropes, and you think, you know what? I've been fighting this war a long time. I'm going to call a friend, and I'm going to ask for support. I'm going to pull out those scriptures I've memorized. He that's in me is greater than he that's in the world. You know, we're just kind of pulling ourselves up on the rope, just in case we might be finding our feet, and the enemy may feel slightly threatened. Fear will tag out, and insecurity will tag in. And he'll just remind you of all the things you're missing, all the things you're lacking, all the ways you failed in the past and why you're going to fail again. He says this one-two punch, fear and insecurity, fear and insecurity. And this strategy is incredibly effective. It has been in my own life. I feel like I've always been fighting this one-two punch. I have felt so intimidated at times by the giants of San Francisco. My husband and I in full-time ministry here, raising our kids here. Sometimes ministry feels incredibly challenging. Sometimes raising a family in San Francisco feels incredibly challenging. Navigating the school system, figuring out housing. How, I mean, how do you even do that here? It's like a giant. It's overwhelming. And then the community that I work in and I minister in, there's all these complex, ever-changing needs. It just feels like, how, how can I keep up with something so vast and so huge and so overwhelming? San Francisco can feel like a giant every day. We get up and we walk out the door and face the city. And then so often, I feel like I don't have what it takes. The enemy likes to remind me that I'm a small girl from a small village in England, that I grew up in like rural farming community. How could I possibly have anything to offer in a city as magnificent as San Francisco? I always feel like I should have more experience or more training, and I'm missing something. Somehow it's like I wake up and at times I feel like I'm missing something, but I don't even know what I'm missing. Does anyone relate? Does that resonate? Just feel, I feel like I should have, I don't know what it is. I just feel like I'm lacking. I just feel like I'm missing. And this is the work of the enemy in our life. And this one-two punch, this fear and this insecurity, it's all designed to make us retreat. It's all designed to make us pull backwards. And this is exactly what happened to Israel. In Numbers 14, verse 2 to 4, it says, The whole assembly said to them, If only we died in Egypt or in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. See, the result of the fear and the insecurity made Israel say, let's go back. Let's go back to slavery. Let's go back to something that was unhealthy, unsafe, not good, but at least it was familiar. At least we know what to expect there. Sometimes the unknown is so terrifying, the fear and the insecurity so overwhelming, so paralyzing, that we find ourselves saying, let's go back. This is too difficult. This is too hard. I can't do this. How often we go back to familiar mindsets, familiar thinking, 
old habits, addictions, unhealthy relationships. We go back because moving forward is so terrifying. We go back and we step back into that same captivity, that same slavery. And this is the plan of the enemy in our lives. He wants us to retreat. He wants us to move back into negative thinking, expectation of failure, rejection, inadequacy. Because people who are passive, people who are stagnant, people who are moving backwards are not a threat to the kingdom of darkness. You're no threat to the enemy's plan for your family, for your life, for San Francisco, if you're moving backwards. There's no threat there. But we're not designed to be a people that are passive or stagnant or moving backwards. We're designed and called to be a people of faith. And that's the beautiful thing about this story, is there's one voice, one dissenting, powerful voice, and that's Caleb. Caleb stands up in the midst of all the fear-mongering and all the anxiety and all the defeat and all the call to just abandon the promise, go back, retreat, go back to captivity. In the midst of all that, we have this one man, and he stands up, and he says in verse 30, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. And then into Numbers 14, he says, and we shall devour them. We shall devour them. This is the voice of faith. This is the voice of faith that says, let's go. Let's do it. What is so special about Caleb? Did he see something that nobody else had seen? Was he aware of something? I mean, was, did he explore some part of the land that they hadn't? I mean, that is not in scripture. It doesn't point us to that. Was there some kind of inside knowledge that he had that the other spies did not have access to? I don't think so. I think what's going on here is that Caleb had an unwavering trust that God was still the covenant God. That Abraham, in that moment when God gave him that covenant and committed and said, I'm tied to you, I'll be faithful to you. You know what? It's as simple as this. Caleb still believed that. He still believed that God was the same yesterday as he is today. He still believed the promise, even though hundreds of years later, what a beautiful thing to say, I still believe God. How many of us this morning can raise our hand and say, I still believe him. I still believe him for that promise. You see, Caleb saw the same giants. He saw the same cities. He probably felt insecure. I mean, he was human. And yet all of that was inconsequential. All of that was unimportant because God's promise superseded all the giants, all the fortified cities, all the insecurity. See, Caleb had refused to come into agreement with fear and insecurity. You know, fear and insecurity will always be the strategy of the enemy in our lives. It'll always come at us. It'll always rush at us, especially at the moment when we're trying to take a step of faith. It will always feel paralyzing. It will always feel overwhelming. But we have a decision as to whether we come into agreement with it, whether we say, yes, this is true, and I'll build my life on that, or whether we say, I'm going to agree with God's promise for my life for my family, for my future, and I'm going to build my life on that. You see, sometimes we look at people of faith and we think, they just have something that I don't have. Like they have a special gift. They have a special anointing. It's easier for them. 
I've heard people say that it's, it's easier for that person to step out in faith. Like somehow their life has just been easier and it hasn't been difficult for them. I don't think that's true. I don't think people of faith have it easy. I think they see the same giants. I think they walk out of their doors in San Francisco and face the same obstacles. I think that they face the same insecurity and inadequacy and fear. But they see something beyond that. They see something that isn't seen with human eyes. They build their life on the promise of God. They build their lives on the character of God. You see, I want to build my life on the promise of God. I want to build my life on what is unseen, not on what is seen. What are you building your life on this morning? What have you come into agreement with in your life? Is it the promise of God? Are you driven by the spirit of Caleb with this faith that says, despite all of that, I can see that God is at work and I believe and I'm going to hold on and I'm going to say yes when everybody else says no. Or if we come into agreement with a spirit of fear where we're literally intimidated and we won't step out. Have we come into agreement that we are so small and inadequate and lacking? See, some of us live under this agreement that we've made with the enemy. Agreement with the kingdom of darkness will never lead to life. It will never lead you to life. This morning, God's invitation for us is to come out of agreement, to say, you know what, that's not true. That might feel true. That might look true. But this is what's really true, because I'm called to a life of faith. I'm called to build my life on what is unseen. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence and assurance. How do we step into this kind of life? Well, that's the beauty of the gospel. You see, Jesus took the fear, the defeat, the insecurity, all of our sin. He took that to the cross. And when he died and when he rose again, he declared defeated. This is defeated, not you, but the sin and the shame and the fear and insecurity defeated. That's the end. Now let me tell you a new story for your life. See, that's the power of the gospel. But it's like sometimes we live like that didn't really quite happen. Or maybe he like kind of defeated some little bits and left some work for us to do. Let me tell you that the death and resurrection of Jesus was complete. There's not one part of your life that he didn't redeem and restore and make whole in that moment when he rose again. There's not one part of your life that you can't bring to him. There's not one place of inadequacy or insecurity or place that has been there too long. Listen, Israel had been enslaved for 400 years. I don't think there's anyone here 400, right? Okay. <laughs> So you've not been enslaved and in captive as long as Israel, and he still freed them and brought them into the promised land. There's nothing in your life, in your family, in your generations that God can't step into and say, I'm going to free you. Let's break the agreement. Some of you, your families have been in agreement with fear and insecurity. The invitation this morning is to say, not just for me, but for my house too. Not just for me, but for my marriage, for my children, for my future. I'm coming out of agreement with these things. That's the power of the cross. That's the gospel. You see, faith is always moving us forward. It's always moving us forward. The enemy always wants us to retreat. Where are you this morning? Are you retreating? Do you feel defeated? 
Are you overwhelmed and hopeless? Let me tell you, there's an invitation to come and meet with Jesus again this morning, to experience him and the power of the cross. So, you know, I want to be that person of faith. Now, sometimes we think that moments like this have to be this big woo-woo emotional thing. But it's a decision that we make in our heart to say yes to God and going in to take the promised land. The sad thing about this story is that Israel believed the 10 spies. They came into agreement with the fear. They felt intimidated by the giants. They felt small like grasshoppers. And for that, they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And then 40 years later, God in his faithfulness, because again, he's a covenant God, committed, always working to restore relationship with us, always pursuing, brings them back to the edge of the promised land. And who is leading? Joshua and Caleb. Can you imagine? I was just thinking about this last night. I actually started crying because I was so moved by what it must have felt like for Joshua and Caleb to have been the ones that said 40 years ago, we can take it, but nobody listened to us. And they're wandering around and God faithfully brings them and the next generation to the edge of the promised land. I imagine they probably looked out and they thought, we're going. No matter what, no matter what giants we see, no matter Jericho in the distance, no matter what's standing against us, we're not going to miss this opportunity a second time. And this is God's invitation to us this morning, that some of us are standing on the edge of the promised land. We think, oh, I've missed it. I missed it. I made some bad decisions, or I've been you know, in agreement with fear and insecurity my whole life, and I just feel so unable, and it's too late. It's never too late. It is never too late for God to bring you into your promised land. God's invitation to us this morning is to simply do what Caleb said, to say yes. And everyone else said no. To say yes, that's the kind of life I want to lead. I want to shift from building my life on what I see to building my life on what is unseen. It's the supernatural power of God. In just a moment, the worship team is going to come back up. There's going to be a time of giving. But before that, I just want to invite you to close your eyes. And we're just going to respond to God. I'm a a big believer that when God stirs our heart, we don't want to just walk away from that. We want to respond. And as our eyes are closed, if you're here this morning and something this morning resonated with you, maybe it's the fear, maybe it's the insecurity, maybe it's just been that trap of the enemy's been twisting God's word over your life and trying to convince you that he's not good, that he's not for you, that he's withholding from you. I just want to encourage you to open a hand in your lap or a couple of hands in your lap. See, a significant spiritual shift can happen in just a moment. Don't let the enemy deceive you that what you're doing right now is not powerful, cannot change the course of your life and your family. Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for you in the cross. I'm so thankful, Lord, that even when we stray and we get lost and we say, oh, I I don't think I can, and even when we come into agreement with fear and insecurity, you are the covenant God that says, I'm tied to you. I can't help but love you. I can't help but pursue you. I'm a redemptive God by nature. And that you bring us to this moment, this morning again, and you give us the invitation to say yes. And so, Father, 
I just want to ask that where there have been agreements in this room with fear and insecurity, would you break them in Jesus' name? And just in your hearts, in your mind, as I'm praying, just come into agreement with the truth of God over your life. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be experienced. The promised land is taken by the people that believe. And simply that. Holy Spirit, would you come fill us and enable us to do this because we need your strength and we need your power this morning. That we would be a people of faith that would move forward. And I pray that even right now that you'd highlight to us places where we have been stagnant and retreating and give us the boldness and the confidence to say, we should go up and take this land because we can devour them. Seal the work you're doing in our hearts, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.